the age of ebooks and digital information, are libraries still relevant? The answer is a resounding yes, if you ask Michael D.D. White. The Brooklyn residence is a founding member of the group Citizens Defending Libraries. People learn better with physical books. People prefer it. This is Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. We'll hear from Michael about his group's mission to preserve and protect New York City's libraries later in the show. We'll also talk with the author of a new book about an especially fierce battle against a plan that would have demolished the beloved stacks at the main branch of the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue at 42nd Street in Manhattan. The book is called Patience and Fortitude, a reference to the marble lions that stand guard outside what's officially known as the Stephen A. Schwarzman Building. Those lions have long captured the imagination and affection of New Yorkers and tourists alike. Our first guest today is Susan Larkin. She wrote a book called Top Cats, The Life and Times of the New York Public Library Lions. Susan, when did the lions make their debut? Well, they made their debut in September of 1910 and immediately were attacked, which may be surprising to a lot of people. It certainly was to me. What do you mean by attacked? Well, attacked verbally. Okay. And they were, made, they were mocked. And the, uh, the sculptor, Edward Clark Potter, was taunted. Uh, he was a very experienced and well-trained um, animalier, animal sculptor, but he was accused of not knowing the, the correct anatomy of a lion. And so the press just had a field day topping one another with bad jokes about the lions. So it, it was a, quite a turnaround for them to become the beloved figures that they are today. What was one of those jokes? Do you know? Oh, they were compared. They said the, the faces of the lions looked like Ibsen, the playwright. Uh, they were mush, mushy-mouthed, mealy, very complacent. They weren't truly lion-esque. They were, they were just lazy-looking cats. The one was said that its face looked like that of a cow. It was just not really very sophisticated wit, just taunts. Um, How much do we know about the decision to place lions outside of the library? Well, that's very interesting. Uh, That decision was made as early as 1897 uh, when there are drawings by the architects of the New York Public Library's, what we think of as the main building to this day, by Career and Hastings. And they show several positions for sculpture in the library, outside the library, and including two recumbent lions and and the position where they are today. So they chose the position early, early on. Uh, The look of the lions was changed by the sculptor. They chose Edward Clark Potter, so he probably was involved before 1900, but they weren't finished or put into place even in the plaster cast, as I said, until September 1910. What do we know about the material used to make those lions, to sculpt them? Yeah, it's called pink Tennessee marble. Again, surprising because they don't look particularly pink to us. They only, that particular marble, which was very much favored by sculptors of the uh, American Renaissance, it's only pinkish when it's polished. But when it's more matte, as is the case with the New York Public Library, the top cats, uh, it, it looks white. The lions are called Patience and Fortitude. How did they get those names? Well, those were only the most popular and enduring of a number of nicknames that they've been given over the years. A lot of people um, sort of took their try at giving them names and often ignoring the fact that they're both males. They'd give them a male name and a female name like Leo and Leonora or Pyramus and Thisbe. Then there were others that were Lord Astor and Lord Lennox for the 
you know, founders of the library. But those names, Patience and Fortitude, were based on a quote by Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, who had radio broadcasts, and ended, signed off always by saying, the people of this city have two great qualities, patience and fortitude. <laughs> and so in another example of the lions being taken as representative of the city, they got those names. No one knows really how that transfer happened, whether LaGuardia himself said it, but it's the lions as the city. <laughs> Are the lions identical? Yes, they are. And I spent, I guess a lot of other people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out subtle differences from one to the other until I learned that Potter, the sculptor, Edward Clark Potter, made only one model. And it was of the southerly lion, as it happens. But he made it first in wax, then in clay, then it was brought up to full size and plaster, but he only did one. Then there, for sculpture, for this kind of public large-scale sculpture, there was a team of artisans, in this case the Piccirilli Studios, who were in the Bronx here. At, I think it was 142nd Street in the Bronx. And they made a mirror image. So it's the same lion in, in a mirror, in effect. <laughs> So which is which, though? Which is patience and which is fortitude? Well, I think if you stand in front, we tend to read left to right. So I guess patience is the southern one and fortitude is the northern one. <laughs> have they ever been vandalized over the years? Yes, they were. Sadly, they have been. Um, when In the old days, when an important part of the seasonal celebration was the placement of a holly wreath around one of the around both of the lions a vandal set fire to one of them hmm. which resulted in cracking the sculpture and i think there were smaller incidents over the years but that the cardinal rule of anything of that sort is to clean it up right away so that the vandal doesn't feel pride in it i've read that patience and fortitude have been trademarked by the library is that correct that I don't know, but they are very much visible as the library's symbol and their their logo. Some years ago, I, was, I believe it was in the 50s, there was a lot of correspondence in the library files about uh, getting a new trademark, getting a new, um, I should say, a new symbol. Uh, and they had, you know, working committees and consultants and marketing gurus and so forth. And they finally came around to realize that they had the best symbol that they could ever have. What inspired you to write a book about these lions? Well, I'd always been interested in public sculpture and especially how the public responds to public sculpture. So I was taking a course on public art at the Graduate Center of the uh, City University of New York. And um, one of the suggestions was that we write about public response to some individual sculpture. So I chose that one. And the essay that I wrote was... Uh, included in an anthology on public art published by the Smithsonian. And then the New York Public Library was giving it photocopies of it out to anyone who asked for information about the lions. So I said, let's, let's do a little book and put in some of the wonderful cartoons, New Yorker covers, um, ads that include the lions. Just let's make it more visual and more complete. What piece of information has fascinated you most about these lions? Oh, my goodness. I guess perhaps it was the changing response, how they were maligned in the beginning. And, and I think that was partly because people were angry at the library. 
It had taken not three years in 1897 when Career and Hastings submitted those first plans, but it had taken more than 14 years for them to complete the, the project. And you know, there were cost overruns, there was disruption to life and so forth. So the lion's role as symbols of the library started in a bad feeling about the library. But then later on, architecture critic Paul Goldberger calling them New York's most lovable public sculpture, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, and during, you know, soon as the model was set, uh, the plaster model was set on the pedestals in 1910 to be sure that the light played on it well and that sort of thing before it was com- completely carved in marble. Other sculptors, other connoisseurs really praised the lions and said that Potter had done a fabulous job. And his old friend and mentor, Daniel Chester French, the sculptor of the Lincoln Memorial and the Minuteman, um, was vehement in defending him against um, what he called the ignorant taunts of uh, uninformed people. <laughs> so... Susan Larkin, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, George. It's been a pleasure. Susan Larkin is the author of Top Cats, The Life and Times of the New York Public Library Lions. Patience and fortitude stand guard outside of the main branch of the New York Public Library in Midtown Manhattan. But a few years back, they could do little to fend off a project that would have demolished the stacks and sold off branch libraries. That's when a group of activists stepped in to block the plan. Journalist Scott Sherman wrote about the battle for the nation and is now out with a book that tells the story of the fight to save the New York Public Library. Scott joins me now on the phone. Scott, hello. Hi. So the main branch of the New York Public Library at 5th Avenue and 42nd Street is one of the nation's most famous and beloved libraries. What can you tell me about its history that helps to set the stage for the story you focus on in this book? The point I would make to start with is that the main branch of the New York Public Library is one of the city's palaces of free education. The writer Frank McCourt wrote a story for the New York Times in 1997 discussing his first years in New York City in the 1950s. And it was a wonderful piece in which McCourt wrote, It was Tim Costello who told me to get out of his bar and walk a few blocks to where I'd see two lions and to go in there and get myself a library card. So McCourt walked across the street, he exited the bar, and walked uh, up the stairs into the main branch of the New York Public Library. And McCourt concluded his piece by saying, quote, up on the third floor I discovered paradise, the great reference room with its hundreds of index card drawers. I asked a librarian if it would be all right to look in the drawers, and he said, of course, of course, anything you'd like. This book springs from a series of cover stories you wrote for The Nation about the library, right? Right. What inspired you to delve into this topic in the first place? I've been a free, I had been a freelance writer in New York since the early 1990s, and I didn't feel like working at home all day. I needed a place to go. And so the Great Rose Reading Room of the 42nd Street Library, which is on the third floor of the main building, became my second home. The stories I wrote as a freelance writer for various magazines often required a lot of research. I did pieces on the Spanish Civil War on the history of the Black Panther Party. So I needed a first-class research library that was also a beautiful space. And so the 42nd Street Library became my home away from home. So talk to me about the plan, the central library plan at the center of this story. The New York Public Library consists of 88 branch libraries and four research libraries. And 
the institution has always been under financial pressure. It, it almost folded in the 1920s. The 1960s were terrible. Uh, the 1970s were even worse. And basically, the institution has always been underfunded by the federal government, the local government. And so in 2006, the trustees of the New York Public Library, who were principally, although not completely, businessmen, decided that some of the branch libraries that the New York Public Library owned in Midtown Manhattan sat on prime real estate. So in 2007, they ratified a plan to sell three branch libraries in, Mid in Midtown Manhattan and to do a major renovation of the main branch at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue. The renovation, they sold it as a $300 million renovation, but it turned out to have been a much more expensive proposition than that. So why was there such furor over this plan? The plan involved selling a few branch libraries in central Manhattan. One of the branch libraries that was very quickly sold after the plan was ratified was the Donnell Library on 53rd Street across from the Museum of Modern Art. The plan, the central library plan, what it was called, was created in total secrecy, and the sale of the, of the Donnell happened without any prior word to local residents. It was a beloved branch library, and people in the neighborhood were extremely upset. The plan also called for the sale of the Mid-Manhattan Library on 40th Street and 5th Avenue, which is not in great shape. It's, it's dilapidated. It's falling apart. But it's a beautifully designed space for a branch library, and it sits at the crossroads of a great city. So people were upset that one library was sold, the Donnell. They were upset that the Mid-Manhattan was set to be sold, and they were also extremely upset that the cornerstone of the central library plan, which was the renovation of the main building, called for basically the gutting of the middle of the 42nd Street Library. You know, it's one of the country's greatest building, its buildings, it's possibly New York City's greatest building. And the plan, which was to be undertaken by the British architect Norman Foster, called for the demolition of seven levels of book stacks beneath the Rose Reading Room. But that's the heart of the building. And our, our two best architecture critics, Michael Kimmelman of the New York Times and the late Ada Louise Huxtable, argued in 2012 that it would be uh, essentially the devastation and the gutting of one of the country's great buildings. And in all of this, they would move three million books off-site, right, to New Jersey, which, in fact, they did, didn't they? The whole issue of where the books are is a complex one, and it keeps shifting. But, yes, uh, prior to uh, the execution of the plan in 2010-2011, there were three million books under the Rose Reading Room. Uh, it was an extraordinary arc. It was an extraordinary collection of books. This was the collection of books that I myself used for 20 years as a freelance writer in Manhattan. But... What happened was that the Central Library plan was a Michael Bloomberg project. It was a Bloomberg-era project. The mayor was strongly behind it. And the New York Public Library had to execute the project while Bloomberg was still in office because the plan rested on $150 million of city money, which uh, the next mayor had the power to take away. So my point is that in their rush to execute the plan, in their rush to complete the plan while Bloomberg was still in office, they removed those three million books, and that has led to a lot of misery and a lot of chaos for the people who, who use those books. Right. It's going to take a lot more time for them to get a book if they want that book. 
that's part of the problem, George. But another problem is that when they hastily removed those books in 2012, many of them were lost and some of them were damaged. So if you walk into the New York Public Library today at 42nd Street, you'll find many, many researchers who are struggling to get books, and in some cases the library's staff doesn't know where the books are. And this is a tremendous problem because the New York Public Library is one of the world's five or six great libraries. They have, any, they have millions and millions of books, and if you're doing research on a specific issue, it's possible that you need a book that is only in NYPL's possession. So are there plans to bring the books that were moved out back? Supposedly, the New York Public Library is building new shelf space under Bryant Park because books were always stored in two places. Books were principally stored, as I said earlier, underneath the Rose Reading Room inside the library at 42nd Street. But a number of years ago, in the 1980s, the library also built storage space underneath Bryant Park. So what is supposedly happening now is that extra shelf space is being constructed under Bryant Park, and we're being told that when that project is completed in several years, there will be roughly three million books on site, which may be the case, and I hope that's the case, but there's also the issue of books being lost and books being damaged. So when did the turnaround happen? When did they decide not to go forward with the Central Library plan, and what was the reasoning for not going forward? The controversy started in late 2011 when I wrote the first piece about it for The Nation magazine. Uh, The controversy built all through 2012. It got even hotter in 2013. And when Bill de Blasio became mayor, that spelled the end of the Central Library Plan. Because when de Blasio was campaigning for mayor in July 2013, he gave a press conference on the steps of the 42nd Street Library basically saying, this is a bad idea. And so Mayor de Blasio found himself with the power to redirect the $150 million that Bloomberg had promised. And Mayor de Blasio did not give me an interview for my book, Patience and Fortitude. But people close to the mayor and people who understand city politics well tell me that Mayor de Blasio essentially said to the New York Public Library, you can't do this. How much money was spent in preparing to do this, though? I would imagine a significant amount. When the plan died in early 2014, it died in May of 2014, the New York Public Library's communications department said that $18 million was spent on the central library plan. Of that $18 million, $9 million was paid to the architect, Norman Foster, for a canceled architectural design. Yes, Norman Foster was paid $9 million for a canceled architectural design. The problem with this is that New York Public Library is not a wealthy institution. If you go to the 88 branch libraries around the city, especially the branch libraries in poor neighborhoods, you'll see that the roofs are leaking, the windows need replacement, the elevators need replacement. And so the official answer from the New York Public Library is that $18 million was spent. But I've been reporting the story for almost four years, and I think it's possible that 30 to $40 million was squandered on the Central Library plan. And where did that money primarily come from? Was it a grant? The finances of the New York Public Library are extraordinarily complex. It's a nonprofit institution, and uh, nonprofit institutions, by and large, exist in the shadows. You cannot do a freedom of information law request for nonprofit institutions. You can, but many nonprofit institutions feel that since they're not government departments, like the sanitation department, they don't have to respond. So I regret, I mean, I love the library, but I have to say that its finances are a black box, and it's extremely difficult to understand how they're spending their money.
Now, is the New York Public Library system any more of a strange entity compared to other library systems than in the nation? It is. It's a very, you know, almost no library system in the nation has a crown jewel like the 42nd Street Library, uh, the 42nd Street branch. It's a strange beast. It's an unusual beast in the sense that the New York Public Library consists of two parts. There are the 88 branch libraries, and then there there are the four research libraries, one of which is the Schomburg Library up in Harlem, which is one of the country's truly outstanding spaces for research into the African-American experience. And so, yes, it's a very unusual library system. Uh, New York City has two other library systems, the Brooklyn Public Library and the Queens Public Library. And occasionally politicians talk about merging all three city library systems into one system. But right now, the New York Public Library is indeed a strange beast. And what really makes it stand out is the precariousness of its financing. It's really striking that and such an intellectually distinguished library has tremendous financial difficulties. That said, I think a lot of people will be surprised to learn that the library's president makes, what, $700-plus-thousand-dollars? Uh, well, the last time I checked, it was $760,000. The library's communications officer earns close to $300,000. So, again, nonprofit institutions, by and large, exist in the shadows, and they can really do whatever they want to a great extent. And part of their freedom is the freedom to pay their executives whatever they want. And so, yes, Tony Marks, the NYPL's president, is paid 760000 It has to be said in his defense that he raises a tremendous amount of money. Uh, he raises you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars a year, works very hard at it. It's not an easy job. It's not an easy institution to run. But yes, those salaries are very eye-opening. What do you think the future holds for this library in today's digital age? Can we see history repeating itself? Do you think there might be another plan down the pike? I think that if another mayor, I think that under a future mayor uh, who is perhaps more business-friendly, somebody like Michael Bloomberg, if somebody like Bloomberg is elected after de Blasio, I think it's very possible that the trustees of the New York Public Library might try something like this again. That is to say, they might try to sell local branch libraries that are sitting on prime real estate. They might try to destroy the stacks in the main building. They might try something like that. On the other hand, I think this entire, you know, li- libraries don't like controversy. And I think the people who run the New York Public Library were listening loud and clear to every bit of this debate. And my hope is that they learned from the debate. And my hope is that if they try to do anything like this again, they will consult the public and hold public meetings and get rid of the secrecy that defined the plan. Scott Sherman, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Scott's book, Patience and Fortitude, Power, Real Estate, and the Fight to Save a Public Library, is out now from Melville House. Just last week, the New York Public Library announced plans to increase staff, hours, and Sunday service. Library officials credited a, quote, historic increase in operating funding to the city's library systems in fiscal year 2016. But the husband and wife team behind the group Citizens Defending Libraries says the investment is not enough. Michael D.D. White and Carolyn McIntyre are on the phone with me now. Thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. Well, thank you for having us. So first and foremost, why do libraries matter in today's digital age? Which one of you wants to take that question? 
Um, well, digital doesn't replace what libraries do. I mean, <clears throat> there's an archiving function, but the public still prefers physical books. Uh, we have a page up on Citizens Defending Libraries with many, many links about um, uh, what digital does and doesn't do and what physical books do. People learn better with physical books. People prefer it. There was a front page article about how children learn better. Scientific American did a roundup of um, how the brain relates better to uh, physical materials. And there, there are uses and advantages to uh, digital books. I buy them. I use them. I frequently buy both kinds of books. When you're doing both, uh, you need to enlarge libraries. There's been increased use of libraries in spite of the digital, the advent of digital books. And this a percentage of circulations that are digital checkouts from the library is still very, very small, only about 7.3% according to the last thing I had read. Yeah, the uh, circulation overall is up 60%. How much do you know about who's frequenting libraries in New York City? I can tell you from my own experience, I've met thousands of people. Our petitions, two petitions under de Blasio and Bloomberg, have been signed by over 20,000 people, actually when you count the people that we can't enter online who don't have computers, emails, or smartphones, the number is closer to 24,000. There are actually a lot of people using libraries who don't have home computers and who don't have email and use the computers in the library for that reason. So I can tell you that there's a huge variety and range of people who use the libraries, which is exactly what our, I think our forefathers and people who created libraries wanted. They wanted a spirit of this is a place for free, equal access to knowledge and information, and this is what we are trying to protect. So, Carolyn, you mentioned those petitions. What specifically have you been advocating for? We are advocating for funding for libraries that's appropriate to the way that people value and use libraries, that New Yorkers cite libraries as their number one priority over sports stadiums and all other cultural institutions combined, so our city budget should reflect that priority. So what about the budget right now? Because I understand that New York City Mayor de Blasio and the city council have put an extra $39 million toward the city's libraries with the additional funding allowing for a restoration of six-day service at all branches across the city's three library systems, Brooklyn, New York, and Queens. That's deceptive, and it doesn't take into account history, which Michael can speak to. Yeah, basically, you have to remember that... Um, the libraries were asking for $65 million in order to restore the uh, Bloomberg cuts. The Bloomberg cuts go back um, uh, very noticeably to when Bloomberg was planning to launch a sell-off and shrinkage of the libraries. Um, they only got, it, wasn't, it was initially announced to be $39 million in a lot of the news media. It's actually $43 million. The um, Mayor has sometimes said it's 46, but the Independent Budget Office confirms it's uh, 43. So that's only a portion of the restoration. And some of that number is de appears deceptively high because the mayor actually cut restorations of funding that he had put in the previous year's budget. So it was a, a bit of a budget dance. We're back to the budget dance. So you're petitioning now for additional funding? It, it, it's good that there is a higher level of funding uh, this year than last year, but we do need to improve the funding. And right now, the lack of funding is being cited as a reason to sell and shrink libraries. And uh, we need to fund libraries adequately so that 
that is not possible. We used to fight for funding for libraries so that we could expand libraries, and that was is what we were doing under the previous administrations, under Dinkins and Giuliani. <clears throat> it's only under Bloomberg that we did a 180-degree turn, and now we're shrinking libraries. In a city that is wealthier than ever, in a city that has a record number of billionaires, in a city that has a budget surplus, this is this is inexcusable. When did Citizens Defending Libraries come about? A little bit more than two years ago. We um, formed in response to breaking headlines where you could connect the dots and see that uh, we were looking to turn libraries into real estate deals, selling them across the city. Mm, so that's partly uh, when things were being, becoming clearer about what was going on with the Central Library Plan, which was described in Scott Sherman's book. And we were part of two of the lawsuits opposing the Central Library Plan. So you had the sell-off of Mid-Manhattan, the sell-off of Sybil, the sell-off of Donnell. Then the, uh, in Brooklyn, the proposed sell-off of the Brooklyn Heights Library, which is uh, very they're, they're pressing very hard on right now. And then the sell-off of Pacific Street, uh, a shrinkage of the Red Hook Library, which we have managed to uh, uh, forestall and probably prevent. And Williamsburg, they've given away the top floor of the library to uh, a private group called Spaceworks, uh, but we're also concerned about other libraries like Clinton Hill. Michael Carolyn, thank you so much. Thank you. Michael D.D. White and Carolyn McIntyre are the founders of Citizens Defending Libraries. You'll find them online at citizensdefendinglibraries.blogspot.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. Remember, you can find past episodes of the show at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. My thanks to producers Claire Drake and Taylor Nolk. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.